throughout our series, we'll ask questions of folks down at Finley Market and in the atrium and, and other times, just of, about the different issues and the different perspectives and opinions. Today, the focus, what does it, what do you believe about being a Christian? With the, what does it mean for you to be a follower of Jesus? And as we had a myriad of different responses from people in the video, now we have the, the privilege of hearing from two um, elders, folks that God has raised up, that you have elected to be leaders in this congregation, and that they have, uh, they're going to come share with, uh, with us what it means for them. What does it, how does it really apply? Not a doctrinal statement, but how does it really apply in their lives what they believe about being a Christian? First, uh, Bill Bentley and then Rick Towner, two elders serving on session who will be rolling off at the end of this year, will share with us from the Word and how it impacts their lives. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we ask that Your Spirit would continue to open our eyes, to work on our calluses, to make it real for each of us. Help us to hear what you would be saying to us as we hear from your word, as we hear from these men seeking to follow you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Bill? Good morning, everyone. It's good to be here with you all today. And uh, I suppose it's really my fault that I'm even up here today. Several months ago, I was talking with Drew and another elder about how we could lessen his preaching load a little bit. And I said, Drew, have you ever thought about asking some of the elders to speak? And he said, well, actually, I am considering that. And then a couple months ago, I get the uh, email. You know that email. It says, Bill, would you like to share with us, uh, maybe preach one Sunday? So... My own fault, I suppose. But after I speak today, Drew, I don't think there'll be any reason for you to worry about um, losing your job here, uh, your job security. But anyway, I I would like to um, actually have a conversation with you today, not so much preaching, but just share what uh, the Lord has placed on my heart and where he's leading me at this time in my life. And speaking at this time in my life, I have a little secret to share with you. Um, In 60 days, about 60 days, I'll hit a major milestone in my life. I'm going to turn 50 in August. And um, 50 is a place, I suppose, for a lot of us, um, maybe some of us aren't there yet or some of us have been there, but it's sort of a place where you start taking inventory of your life and think about what have I accomplished up to this point, but also what does the Lord have in, in store for me for the remaining years of my life? As far as how I've done so far, I'm sure I'm like a lot of people in that other than a few regrets, I've lived a pretty good life as far as being a good citizen, a faithful employee, a faithful husband and father, and serving God and my church in a variety of ways. When I think about my Christian journey, I feel like I've been a Christian all my life, having been raised in the church from birth and accepting Jesus Christ as my Savior at the age of five. But one thing I've found that 50 years has taught me is that living a good life and doing churchy things 
isn't all that God calls me or any of us to do. We can all certainly appreciate, we've, we've all done our experiences of church, of teaching Sunday school or help passing the collection plate or even serving on session as an elder. But these, these are all good and important things. But if we aren't being salt and light to the world, if we're not loving, serving, and connecting to the world, whereas the Apostle Paul says, a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Having said that, I think we can all agree that God did not intend for us to be Sunday morning Christians, or as I like to say, Christians incognito. Much of my life has been, uh, my Christian life has been serving God in the safe confines of the four walls here or, or in other churches. I have since learned that we don't serve a safe God, but he is one who is willing to risk everything, even his own son, for the sake of a lost and dying world. That realization deeply challenges my own personal faith, and that was made even more evident this past um, few weeks during our series on Daniel. Now, there's no question that Daniel is one of my favorite Bible characters of all time because he was a man of deeply rooted convictions whose own faith was challenged and rewarded because he made true to those convictions. Next to Jesus Christ, Daniel is sort of the character I like to emulate my life after. But unfortunately, as Christians in the Western culture, we have little in our lavish and comfortable lifestyles to be challenged about or having our faith challenged. We don't have to really depend on God so much for our next bite of food or our next glass of clean water or even our next breath so much. Christians in third world countries, on the other hand, rejoice when they're persecuted, while here in the United States we rejoice when the gas prices dip below $3.80. Christians in Turkey and Pakistan and Sudan and China rejoice when they encounter suffering for their faith, while in the West we complain when our commute to work is halted by a traffic jam or if our meal at a restaurant isn't to our liking. Is it any wonder, as Drew pointed out a few weeks ago, that the Chinese church, one of the most persecuted churches in the world, prays for our persecution, that we may experience true revival? So this whole concept of living under persecution is really pricked at my skin and pricked at my heart. And it's become more vivid for me because just this past year I picked up a book called The Heavenly Man. It's about a Chinese Christian named Brother Yun who risked his life and the life of his family by resisting the orders of his Chinese government in which you are not to proclaim the gospel in public. Needless to say, Brother Yun experiences various beatings, imprisonments, and tortures for his faith, but also describes many miraculous healings and escapes for his faith. Toward the end of the book, Brother Yun offers Christians in the West some sage advice regarding our state of affairs here in the United States. Allow me to read just a few of these quotes, and if they make you a little uncomfortable, that's the intent. One thing he said was that the Chinese Christians do not pray for the persecution to stop We shouldn't pray for a lighter load to carry, but a stronger back to endure. Then the world will see that God is with us, empowering us to live in a way that reflects his love and power. The Chinese missionaries that they train receive training in how to suffer and die for the Lord, 
how to witness for the Lord, and how to escape. In the West, many Christians have an abundance of material possessions, yet live in a backslidden state. They have silver and gold, but they don't rise up and walk in Jesus' name. In China, we have no possessions to hold us down, so there's nothing preventing us from moving out for the Lord. Why does the West not experience revival? Two things, pursuit of possessions and knowledge of God's word is missing, as is obedience. Church members in the West are satisfied with giving their minimum to God, but not their maximum. The West doesn't witness miracles, signs, and wonders because they have insurance for everything and in some ways don't really need God. Finally, he says, in the West, speaking to us as Christians, there may not, we may not experience torture and death, but we may experience ridicule, slander, and rejection if we are true to our faith. As I read stories of the persecuted church, I have to admit that I almost feel guilty calling myself a Christian. And rather than reflecting the qualities of my Bible hero, Daniel, I'm more like Jonah swallowed up by his own disobedience. I'm more like Peter in denial, and I'm more like Moses passing the buck by making lame excuses for why he couldn't lead and could God maybe pick somebody else. Many times I'm quite satisfied to just let my actions speak for my faith, hoping that they'll rub off on my coworkers and neighbors rather than risk rejection and ridicule. Sort of like the quote by St. Francis of Assisi that says, preach the gospel and if necessary use words. Well, most of the time I don't have the courage to do the latter. Paul is very clear, though, that suffering and persecution is to be the norm for the Christian. And for a reason. In James 1, 2 through 4, for example, he reminds us that whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Then also in Romans 5, 3 through 5, the apostle tells us to boast in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So I ask the question, why aren't we more bold in our witness? Perhaps we believe the lie that religion is a private matter because nice, benign Christians are no threat to Satan at all. Satan wants us to worship the God of tolerance and political correctness. One author that I read believes that perhaps in the not-too-distant future, witnessing to the exclusive nature of the gospel may very well be classified as a hate crime. The thought police may turn in people who speak words that make people feel left out or guilty. Churches will exhort members to let their lives speak for themselves, or let their lives speak Um, to others. But one of the most arrogant things a person can say is, I'll let my life speak for me. As Sam Shoemaker, the founder of AA, used to say, that's too much about us and too little about him. The truth is that Satan doesn't really care so much if you're a Christian, just so you don't act like one. If he can get you to live by his signals, he can damage and disarm you every time and dishonor the name of Christ. Instead, Jesus calls us to be salt and light. And as it says in Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven.
So, how does this impact me today? Well, I don't know if this resonates with you at all at this point, but for me it means I cannot live my earthly life or what's left of it other than to serve Jesus from here on. If I am to expect to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, when I reach the heavenly realms, then I need to start making some major adjustments in my life. First, I need to closely examine all my intents and motives through the filter of God's word. Immersing myself in scripture daily and throughout the day. I think last week, if you were here, the expression, did you floss today, has new meaning for us now. And if you weren't here, then you need to listen to the podcast or ask somebody who was here. But did you floss today has another meaning besides dental hygiene. I found also, besides just opening this book up, I've gotten some um, CDs of the Bible that I can listen to on my way to work today, which is about a 30-minute commute. And it's just been a blessing for me to be saturated and to have that word marinate in my heart. I also feel I need to be open to the Spirit's leading and to listen to how God reveals himself, whether it be through his word, through his people, through prayer, or just through circumstances. Knowing that I may be the only Jesus people ever meet, I need to be more intentional, not only in my actions, but also in my words and conversations. As our verse in 1 Peter said today, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. If you knew the, the cure for cancer, wouldn't you share that with everyone you knew? In the same way, we've been given a message, a wonderful message of reconciliation. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians says that, or excuse me, related to this, I need to find ways to share my faith that makes Christianity both relevant and attractive, to present it as the one worldview that has the most to offer in terms of answering life's most perplexing questions, such as, where did we come from? Why is the world in such a mess? What is the solution? And why are we here? What is my purpose? I also feel, personally, I need to practice the daily disciplines of prayer and fasting as if they were as natural as eating and breathing. Finally, I need to consider the ramifications of a persecuted lifestyle. 2 Timothy 3 says, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty serious acid test for whether you're living a godly life. I read of one Chinese pastor who prays this prayer daily. God, first of all, please make me an instrument of your grace. And second, prepare prepare me to die this day. Our prayers for new jobs, pay raises, good health, or good weather sort of pale in comparison to that prayer. When I put this all into perspective, though, I realize the concept of persecution is not just an act, as in the act of being persecuted, but it's an attitude as well. Brother Yun, the pastor I just quoted, says that how we mature as Christians depends on the attitude we have when we're faced with suffering. The Lord wants us to embrace suffering as our friend. It is an act of God's blessing on us. Finally, in uh, Philippians 1.20, Paul says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in any way, but that by speaking with all boldness, Christ will be exalted now as always in my body, whether by life or by death. 
For to me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Here we know that Paul is wrestling with whether it is better to stay and continue his ministry on earth or is it better to die and be with Christ? For him, it's a life and death decision. But either way, he chooses Christ as glorified. As it says in Philippians 1, we're reminded to live our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. For he has graciously granted us the privilege of not only believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. For some of us, that suffering may actually be a physical death. For many of us, ridicule and rejection may be our greatest level of suffering. But for all of us, it will mean dying to our pride so that the message of reconciliation can be shared with the world. I would ask a favor of you over the next 60 days. I want to ask you, 200 of my best friends, to be in prayer for me and to hold me accountable for these action steps that I've just shared. I too will pray for each of you, and should we cross each other's paths, let's compare notes and and see uh, how we can encourage each other and build each other up. In the words of Oswald Chambers, God is not saving the world, it is already done. But our business as Christians is to get men and women to realize that. May we, College Hill Presbyterian, be about our Father's business in living out and speaking the gospel without fear of ridicule or rejection, and in so doing, bring a message of love, hope, and grace to the world around us. I thank you for this time. I would ask my uh, dear friend and brother, Rick Towner, to come up and share what's on his heart. morning. I, um, I'm not sure there's a whole lot more that needs to be shared this morning. Uh, thanks, Bill. Before, um, before I start, I, I do want to say that I'm not nearly as old as Bill, <laughs> although I think you'll find that God's at work in our lives in some similar ways. I actually am not that far behind him. I celebrated my 45th birthday yesterday, and um, and that, that's a part of what we'll share here. But it's been a privilege to serve you on session, and it's been a particular privilege to serve with people like Bill and, uh, and people like Drew. And uh, I'm very excited about where God is leading our church. Central to what I think it means to be a Christian uh, is that we seek to bring our lives under the authority and guidance and wisdom of Scripture. And so what I'd like to do with you for about ten minutes is just spend some time in a passage that's been significant in my life these last couple of years, uh, particularly as it relates to the question of um, what's God's will for my life? Uh, At this midpoint in life, similar to Bill, I find myself asking that a lot and looking back and looking forward. The passage is from 2 Timothy chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul's writing from prison, uh, a letter that he's quite sure will be his last words to his pupil and his very dear friend and co-worker, Timothy. Paul writes, You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses and trust of faithful people who will be able to teach others as well, share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It's the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. 
Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David. That is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is sure, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Paul begins that passage in in verse 1 of chapter 2 by saying to Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Before you do anything, Timothy, it's God's will that you be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And it's not surprising that Paul starts there because Paul was rescued from a life of religious pride by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. The theme of the grace of God in Christ Jesus runs through all of Paul's letters. You've heard many of Paul's quotes this morning in in Bill's comments. All of his letters to the churches he established resonate with his call to remain strong in the strength and in the grace of Christ Jesus. I think Paul knew that the last thing the world needed was another religion. Paul had experienced religion and knew that religion, on the one hand, and unbridled hedonism on the other, both lead to the same of one of two places, either to pride or overwhelming guilt. Pride that denies one's need for a savior or guilt that leads to self-condemnation. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York that's become one of my favorite uh, Christian authors, says it this way, religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. Gospel says, I'm accepted by God through what Christ has done. Therefore, I obey. This grace is the answer to my pride and to my guilt. You see, if I don't bring anything to the table, if I don't bring any merit to my relationship with God, then there's really nothing that I can have pride in or or elevate myself over any one of you or anyone else that I encounter in my work, in my neighborhood, in my school, in my son's dorm. But at the same time, if, if... Everything I received has come to me through the unmerited favor of God in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. Well, then my identity in Christ, there is no condemnation for me. And so I can walk a 45-year-old, middle-aged, Midwestern guy. I can walk in confidence and in humility. As we received uh, new members this morning, you'll notice that... um, well, one of the neat things for me in working with these new members is, is uh, a member of session these last couple of years is that I get to hear their stories of how the amazing grace of God in Christ Jesus has intersected with their lives. Different stories, each of them, but the same amazing grace that's delivered them from condemnation on the one hand and pride on the other and how they've experienced grace in this community and now commit to serving here. When you see and meet our new members, I think you'll you see that it's a pretty diverse group of folks. And I think the Apostle Paul would say, that's the way that it should be. In this grace that comes to us through Christ Jesus, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. Put your own 21st century monikers on, on those words that Paul used. But Christ is all and is in all. And so for me, as I 
stand in midlife and ask, God, what's your will for my life? What's your will for the rest of my career? What's your will for my children, where they go to college and what they major in? I come back to this often and say, God's will for me starts with remaining strong in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. But Paul's clever, I think, because uh, he understood that once he's got Timothy committed to remaining, remaining strong in the grace that's in Jesus, well, then he can ask him to do anything. Because if I'm bringing merit to the table, if I'm bringing my own morality or my own self-righteousness, well, then I've got something to say about how much I give. But if all my merit has come to me through grace, if I've come to see my need for Savior with the clarity that drives me to surrender all to the one who gave his life and died on the cross for me, well, then I've got no basis for holding anything back. So Paul says to Timothy, go to work, endure hardship, be an obedient soldier, a disciplined athlete, a hardworking, patient farmer. You may end up like me in prison, but you are compelled by grace, just like the Chinese Christians that Bill uh, read to us from. You're compelled by grace to give your life completely to Christ, and in the end, you'll find real life in doing so. So there's a couple things I've come to believe um, about this final part of the passage uh, and what it teaches us about God's will from our life and how we're to go to work as a Church of Christ followers. Uh, first, God's will for my life and yours is that we're to be intentionally engaged in relationships that pass on the gospel one relationship at a time from one generation to the next, from those who've experienced grace to those who are still living in either pride or condemnation. People, not programs, are the work of the church. And if my life is too busy for that, there's a problem. I think Paul would have been more interested in seeing the list of people's names that Timothy was investing in than the list of committees and classes that he was leading. In my own life these days, those names uh, include a couple folks I work with, a boy named... (laughs) A boy named Tyshawn in the, uh, in the Finneytown Finney Kids program. Some of you, some members of my family. And I know that uh, in your lives, there are the names of people that God's calling you to be channels of grace to and, and whose lives you're investing. And I think Paul would say, way to go. That's the work of the gospel. One of the neat things as you celebrate graduations uh, the generations often come together. And a good friend of mine, Dan Dupee, when we were celebrating Jake's graduation last year, uh, had us all line up, everyone that was in the family room, from uh, elementary school kids through junior high and high school kids to Jake right there in the middle who was graduating from high school to some college-age cousins to us middle-aged folks like me and Bill uh, to grandmas and grandpas on the other end. And the question he asked was, how do you get from here over in the elementary school age kids, kids that are over in Sunday school this morning, to hear to grandmas and grandpas that have remained faithful in the grace of Christ Jesus. And the answer is that we all work together to pass on the grace we've received to the next generation and to those that are still outside. So Paul says, go to work. Who are the people that you're investing in? And the other thing I see is that there's really no guarantee of success on our timetable. 
At the end of Paul's life, he's dying in prison. But he's confident and humble in the grace of Jesus, looking forward to what lies ahead. The soldier, the athlete, the farmer, they don't ultimately control the outcome of their work. But they can choose to be obedient. They can choose to be disciplined and to work hard. And they can be patient, knowing that the one who brings life will be faithful. So what's it mean to be a Christian? What's God's will for your life? Whether we're 5, 15, 25, 45, 60 days from being 50, or 85, God's will for us is the same as it was for Timothy, that we stand strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus and never forget our identity as a beloved child of God's. I was at the Band of Brothers this week, and uh, they're seeking to do that, to stand strong through prayer covenants with one another in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This weekend, uh, we're going to start a college ministry that Mike Jorgensen's leading to help that generation stand strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. They're actually going to be meeting at our house, uh, which should be kind of exciting. Your session is just committed to a 30-day prayer covenant for one another and for the congregation. Every time we gather for worship, every time we celebrate the sacraments, every time you open the scriptures, every time we kneel in prayer, God's will is that we stand strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, that we're actively engaged in passing that grace on, and that we act as a good soldier, a good farmer, a good athlete, and trust him for the fruit. So church, let's go to work, and uh, let's pray. Dear God, thanks for um, your presence here this morning, and for this community of faith that's uh, served you for 150 plus years. Thanks for uh, Bill's words and for the words of Paul to Timothy. Help us to stand strong in the grace of Jesus. Help us to be channels of your grace to others. And help us to be hardworking and patient, knowing that the fruit is in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you both very much. What uh, I hope, and I'm sure you did, uh, unless those calluses are really, really thick, you, you caught from both of them of a vibrant, living relationship with God. That God is connecting with them. God is leading them, is touching their hearts and souls in different ways. The same God, with the same community of faith, the same scripture. And what the world needs aren't so much the details that each of them shared, but each one of us will catch those details in different ways. What the world needs are men and women who are in living relationship with God and are simply willing to share that story. And that's simply what they did with us. They got in touch. Okay, God, where are you, where are you hitting me? And now how can I share that with, with my brothers and sisters, with my, my friends at uh, CHPC? What the ushers, deacons have for each of us is simply a little outline for all of us to think about that. They uh, will be handing that out to you um, as you leave and will give you just a little guidance just to think about 
what is my story? How could I put that into words? And God, how can you lead me to share that to encourage a brother and sister? Or to encourage one, to lead one, to direct one who may be caught, as Rick was saying, in either pride or self-humiliation.